Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The history of the telescope is a rich story of human ingenuity and perseverance involving some of the most colorful figures in the scientific world. In this edition of Radio Curious, we talk with Dr. Fred Watson, the astronomer in charge of the Anglo-Australian Observatory at Coonabarabon, New South Wales, Australia. His book, Stargazer, The Life and Times of the Telescope, reveals the science and technology behind the telescope and its impact in unveiling the mysteries of the universe. It concludes with a fictional epilogue in the year 2108. This epilogue looks back at the one-kilometer object that had a 99% probability of impacting the Earth in April 2060. I spoke with Dr. Watson from his office in New South Wales, Australia, and I asked him about this epilogue. I think the answer to that really lies in uh, trying to highlight the, the multiple uses of the telescope. Most of the book uh, is about the evolution of the telescope from the very first instruments that, uh, that existed at the beginning of the 17th century. And, and, uh, and the book is about the way that that development impinged on our almost our sense of place in the universe, the, 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 the sense of position and, and scale that humankind has achieved over the four centuries since then. But I wanted to highlight the fact that the uh, cosmic environment in which the Earth finds itself is a dynamic environment, environment. We're not simply concerned when we look at the sky with with uh, the, the esoteric questions of how did the universe form and, and how, has, how has it evolved over the last 13.7 uh, billion years. I, I, I wanted to highlight the fact that there is still activity going on in the universe that, has, that could have a direct effect on our planet. And indeed, over the last, um, the last 10 years or so, there has been growing concern, I suppose, among some, uh, some quarters of the scientific community uh, that, yes, we recognize now that the fact that the Earth is still being bombarded on some sort of periodic timescale by debris from, uh, from its surroundings. Let me ask you, if I may, about that dynamic environment and compare it to the speed in which it may befall the Earth in relationship to light years. We know that it takes about eight minutes from light from our sun to get to our Earth, and in your book you talk about billions of light years. So something that's dynamic is uh, maybe a little imperceptible to us in our 80-year lifespan. How does that fit in to what you're looking at in the heavens? When we observe the sky, with, with the telescope uh, in whose building I'm standing now, when we observe the sky with that, we are typically looking at objects whose distances are measured in billions of light years. So you're looking um, both uh, out into the depths of the universe and way back in time. But um, I guess on, on our sort of time scale, yes, the 80-year time scale that you just mentioned, that tends to uh, result in a rather static impression of what's going on in the universe. And, and this was particularly true perhaps until the, you know, the 1950s. People had 
very much the idea that not much happened in the in the depths of the universe. But we now know um, that that even on short time scales, uh, and indeed we can often see with instruments like our telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope, you can actually see activity taking place on scales that uh, that are. Um, large by any kind of terrestrial standards, but small by cosmic standards. And the kind of thing I'm thinking of is when you look deep into the universe, you see um, quasars, which are essentially delinquent galaxies. They're young galaxies. And uh, in, in fact, they have very active cores, which uh, usually comprise a black hole with material falling into the black hole and thereby releasing all all kinds of different levels of energy and that's perceptible and indeed you can see the dynamism of that with modern telescopes um, the, the that sort of uh, dynamism I think is is something that has really only recently been recognized uh, if you t if you had talked to me a uh, hundred years ago Barry if there were uh, a sort of 19th century or should I say early 20th century versions of you and I we would have been talking about a universe uh, that's largely static. We would have imagined the planets going around the sun in a, a rather well-defined order and, and in a very neat and tidy fashion, and not much else happening. Can you explain to us then how the dynamic aspects of the universe affect us now in our 80-year more or less lifespan? Well, uh, the, uh, I think really in terms of the uh, perhaps the most immediate impact, and I use the word impact advisedly it goes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago the the idea that uh, you know that, that perhaps the earth is under threat from uh, debris that exists in the solar system that may try and be in the same place as the earth is at the same time um, what we what we i suppose have realized uh, over the, the the last century or so uh, is that uh, we now think we have an understanding of the way um, planets are put together. It, it's all part of the process of star formation, and indeed um, the Earth formed around about four and a half billion years ago as a byproduct of the formation of the Sun. In some senses, all the planets are simply the cinders left over from the formation of this gigantic star, which we see rather close up and call the Sun. Uh, but the process of formation of planets is uh, one that we in the trade call accretion. In other words, smaller par small particles, and indeed it starts off on the scale of dust particles, uh, come together and stick together by <clears throat> forces, um, most, most especially gravity, um, until they uh, gradually build up bigger and bigger objects, which we call planetesimals, which then stick together to form larger objects, and eventually you find that they are planets. So the whole process of planet building is things sticking to one another. And what we've realized within the last two decades is that this process is still going on. Uh, in that there is still material within the solar system. It, there's a lot less of it now than there was four and a half billion years ago, but there's still material in the solar system that is trying to become part of planets. And that's uh, essentially why uh, there is the risk at some level of an impact by an asteroid uh, on the Earth. And it's one that I think is now well recognized, and we have quite reliable figures for what the statistics are of an event like this occurring within any given time scale. Well, two questions that come to mind. One is, based on the fact that it is likely to occur, has it occurred in the past? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, the last uh, impact of 
any great significance was uh, less than 100 years ago in Siberia. Uh, in 1909, there was something that is called the Tunguska event, which was probably the nucleus of a comet rather than an asteroid. But these two things are still representative of the primordial material of the solar system. And this thing <clears throat> basically exploded in the atmosphere above uh, Siberia and, de and flattened an area of the, of the, of the forest uh, that, uh, in that part of the world over a huge, uh, huge area. And so um, uh, there was uh, definitely a, a, a quite uh, extraordinary um, interaction between the cosmic world and the terrestrial world. And the only reason why nobody knows all about this event is that it happened in a very remote part of the Earth's surface. Had that been in, in New York or, or in Los Angeles or Sydney or, or any city, uh, that would, have, it would be a defining event in our recent history. Can you explain for us the difference between the nucleus of a comet and an asteroid? Okay, um, that's, this is a, a sort of a slightly esoteric dis distinction, but uh, we believe that asteroids are prim primarily rocky objects, things that are almost like <clears throat> um, mountain ranges uh, sort of stuck together <laughs> and floating around in space. Most asteroids exist in a very well-defined region of space. Uh, between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And they have been, they're, they're actually there because they've been uh, sort of shepherded there by the gravitational effect of the planet Jupiter, which, uh, whose mass dominates that of the, of the solar system. It's the biggest planet in the solar system, and it has this kind of gravitational sweeping up effect, which is one reason why the asteroids are primarily where they are. But there are asteroids which do come within the Earth's orbit and are potentially Earth-crossing Earth Asteroids. So anyway, the main distinction is asteroids are rocky, whereas comet nuclei are uh, quite different. They are um, basically dusty, but held together with a matrix of icy material, and much of that material is in fact water ice. Um, so the, the, uh, the, the, the primary difference between them is that comets have almost certainly never been processed by heat whereas asteroids probably have. In other words, asteroids have existed in, in, a, in a period of time <clears throat> in which um, they, they, they have been hot, so the, the dust grains have, have essentially melded together and stuck together, whereas comets, by and large, are made of material that has been frozen since the beginning of the solar system. And so that's, that's the big difference between the two. But in terms of um, impacting one of these things with the Earth, their effect is very similar, a large explosion, and that's simply a result of the fact that they're traveling at large velocities with respect to the Earth. It's not the mass of these things that does the damage. Uh, it's the velocity that they impact with. Well, I want to ask you about the likelihood of a future impact, but I want to take a moment and say that on this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Dr. Fred Watson from his office in the Anglo-Australian Observatory, Telescope Observatory, at the Siding Springs Observatory near, you better pronounce it for me. <laughs> it's Coonabarabran, Barry. It's, yeah. it's, it's phonetically spelt Coonabarabran. In New South Wales, Australia. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dr. Watson, what is the likelihood of there being an incident where there would be something from outer space impacting the Earth? The, the likelihood varies with the mass of the object that you're considering. 
for example, if you talk about um, things that are perhaps a few centimeters in diameter, <clears throat> the likelihood there is 100% because we, we see these things um, whisking through the atmosphere as meteors. They're, they're, they're what we call shooting stars. And the Earth is constantly sweeping these things up as it goes around in its orbit. Par par particles ranging from small dust grains to things the size of small stones. As a small stone will produce what we would call a fireball, a very, very bright meteor that has the dazzling effect of lighting up the landscape at night. So that sort of thing is happening all the time. But when you look at uh, larger and larger masses, then you uh, basically, uh, the, the, uh, the probability falls within any given time scale until you're talking about things, um, you know, with a probability perhaps once in half a million years or something like that when, you, when you're looking at very large objects, things um, up to half a kilometre in size, which, by the way, would have a devastating effect on, on the Earth if they landed. Um, so the, the thing that we were just talking about, the Tunguska event, it's thought that that was um, perhaps part of a cometary nucleus about 50 metres in diameter. And we think that uh, the timescale for that kind of impact is really relatively, uh, relatively frequent, something like once every uh, 100 to 500 years, that there might be an impact of that kind that would, would have a noticeable effect on the Earth's surface. Um, so, so what that means, of course, is that these things have occurred in recorded history, and there are people who spend a lot of time looking for for things that could be interpreted as as impacts over recorded history. So, taking what I presume is uh, the fictional epilogue at the end of your book, Stargazer: The Life and Times of the Telescope, you predict with ninety nine point nine percent probability fictionally predict, I presume, uh, that a one-kilometer object would impact the Earth in April of 2060. What does this mean? Okay, it's, a, it's a, an entirely fictional scenario, Barry, so nobody should imagine for one second that I have any inside information on that. But I just wanted to essentially try and set out the kinds of things that might happen if such a scenario were, were realized. And, and in fact, um, what's happened, again, just looking back over the last 10 to 20 years, recognizing that there is a, a, a finite, if very small, and it is very small, but a finite probability of something like this occurring at some stage in the future, uh, governments have at some fairly low level started to invest in telescopes which are specifically looking for what are called NEOs, near-Earth objects, uh, asteroids or comet nuclei that have the potential to collide with the Earth. And so there are various uh, projects, um, most especially, I have to say, in your country, because the U.S. has taken the lead in this. Um, we have uh, a telescope here, in fact, not very far from where I'm standing now, at Siding Spring Observatory, which is a, 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 an asteroid hunter, if you like, and it's, it's funded, in fact, by NASA, via the University of Arizona, and that's looking for uh, these things in the southern hemisphere. And what, what the end product of all this activity is, uh, is that we now have a much more complete record of the kinds of objects that uh, would be likely to, to, to um, pose a threat to the Earth. Things down to a size of about 100 meters, which is actually still very large and still very dangerous. But um, b below that, it gets harder to detect them. Uh, nevertheless, um, with 
with this new knowledge, of course, we, we still find ourselves in a position uh, of some uncertainty because the only way to really work out whether a, a collision is, po is likely at some distant time in the future is to observe these things over a long period of time. There is one um, asteroid, and this is not fiction, uh, an object called 2004 MN4, which uh, is predicted to have a very close approach to the Earth in 2029. And that uh, is, it, it, we now know that there is a virtually zero probability of a collision with the Earth at that time. But what that close approach will do is change the orbit of this object because the gravitational attraction of the Earth will tend to pull it slightly off its original path. And there is, so there is a kind of uncertainty built into that change of orbit, which means that down the track we may have to worry about that object. Um, my view, just for the record, is that uh, humankind is far more likely to wipe itself out than being wiped out by an asteroid. If we have an object of 100 meters in diameter that impacts the Earth, what would result to the Earth? The rule of thumb with an object of that sort of size uh, is 100 meters roughly equates to a 100 megaton hydrogen bomb, a nuclear bomb. Um, and, it, and it scales much more rapidly when you start getting above that size. You, you go up in, in much bigger jumps. But a 100-meter object is about 100 megatons. Now, that's bigger than any uh, nuclear test that has ever occurred in the Earth's atmosphere, or I think on the Earth at all. I think the biggest was about 60 megatons. So you can imagine that if a 100-meter asteroid impacted <clears throat> New York or, or London or, or wherever, the devastation would be enormous. Uh, it would, however, be on a scale that would be a sort of countrywide scale rather than a hemispheric scale, which you would get uh, if you went up to 500 meters. Then you're talking about things like, um, you, you, know, you know, global uh, cooling because of the amount of material that gets thrown up into the atmosphere. You're talking about the po possibility of tsunamis if the impact occurred in, in an ocean. All these the, the worst possible scenarios that we can imagine. Now, we've dwelt on this quite a bit, Barry, and I would hate to, you to get the impression that uh, I go through my life as a doomsayer predicting cosmic catastrophe because I think there are all kinds of mitigating circumstances, one of which is that because of these uh, space-watching telescopes that I just mentioned, we now have a much better uh, preparedness for something uh, unexpected turning up. And indeed, people are starting to think about the strategies that you might employ were it the case that we discovered something that was going to be in the same place at the same time as the Earth sometime in the future. These are strategies which would deflect it and keep it from colliding with the Earth. That's right, yes. I mean, the first thing that you would probably do uh, so, uh, assuming that you had 10 or 20 years to deal with this problem, the first thing that you'll probably do will be send a spacecraft uh, to rendezvous with this object because they would all be in orbit similar to the Earth, so it's a relatively easy process to do that. You'd probably uh, send a spacecraft up there, a, a, a robotic spacecraft, um, and place a radio beacon on this potential threat because by doing that, you can then pinpoint its position much more accurately than you can with a ground-based telescope. And eventually, the sort of strategy that you might employ to deflect it would be to try and give it a slight nudge um, in its orbit. Uh, 
the kind of thing that, you know, the, the, perhaps the popular imagination sees as the remedy for this is, oh, get up there and nuke it. Uh, but, of course, if you, if you try and blow the thing to pieces, what you end up is many, many smaller asteroids in a similar orbit, which can all do a similar amount of damage. So what you have to do is try and deflect it slightly in its orbit. And the earlier you can do that, the more likely you are uh, to have a miss rather than a hit further down the track. And that's why I think in the book I mentioned um, something like an ion propulsion beam uh, rocket being attached to, to an asteroid which could deflect it uh, slightly. And that will probably be the technique that will be used. Dr. Fred Watson, author of Stargazer, The Life and Times of the Telescope, what is the availability or the probability of being able to deflect these kinds of objects? You say they are perhaps are probably the ones that would be used, but is that something that's realistically successful? We don't know. Um, we, uh, you, you may remember that very recently there was um, a, a NASA spacecraft called Deep Impact, which launched a projectile into a comet nucleus whose name was Temple One. Um, that was partly, uh, in fact, most especially that project uh, took place in order to investigate the primordial solar system material of which the comet is made. But it certainly had an underlying theme, which was to see if you can indeed rendezvous with, with a comet and indeed uh, land a projectile on it, even, even though this particular landing was at 10 kilometers per second. So it's very, very much a high energy event. Uh, there is going to be a, a European spacecraft within uh, the next, uh, which is actually already on its way, which will rendezvous with another comet uh, some years down the track, and that will be a soft landing. In other words, a, a, a spacecraft landing on a comet. And this sort of technology is the technology that you would want to think about if you were going to try and deflect a comet uh, from its uh, existing orbit into one that would miss the Earth or an asteroid. The two, the two are essentially equivalent in that regard. Well, let me ask you about yourself. You grew up in Great Britain. You're 60 years old. What drew you to search out the heavens as you have done in your adult professional life? I think it's a, it's a fairly easy question to answer, Barry, because um, when I was at school in the 1950s, uh, science was very much in the ascendant then. We had just uh, got through a world war in which uh, scientific endeavor um, was seen to have played a pivotal role, you know, in things like the invention of rad radar, high-frequency uh, communications, optical instruments, all these things had played a part in, in the, um, essentially the defeat of tyranny during the Second World War. And so uh, science was uh, very much in the public eye. And of course, uh, compounded with that was the start of the Cold War and the space race, because uh, Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite, was launched on the 4th of October 1957. Everybody knew about this, uh, this mysterious Russian spacecraft that was orbiting the Earth, and it was very much in the public imagination. Now, all my peers at school were absolutely um, locked into this idea of looking at the sky and thinking about space travel and things of that sort, and we, many of us had small telescopes. We, um, we went through our school days talking about potential adventures on Mars and all sorts of things like that. The, the thing that happened then was that, of course, my peers 
um, grew up and did sensible things like becoming lawyers and doctors and engineers, um, whereas I never did. I, uh, I'm afraid I was so completely captivated by the idea of space travel and looking into space and finding out how the universe worked that I just was hooked on it straight away. So, in fact, I, I then went on to university to study uh, to, to study uh, astronomy. In fact, I, I ended up with a with a degree in mathematics and physics because I got cold feet that astronomy might just limit me a bit too much in what I could do down the track. So I got my maths and physics degree and then promptly went to work for a firm that built large telescopes for astronomy. And, uh, and indeed, uh, that sort of almost set the pattern for my life since then. I've spent a lifetime working with large telescopes. So tell us how a telescope works. The, the way telescopes work, and, and they come in many different flavors these days, not just optical or visible light telescopes, um, but the way they work is, is, generally speaking, always the same. What you have is something to collect the radiation from the distant source that you're looking at. And in the kind of telescope that I work with, what are called optical telescopes using visible light, that uh, collecting element is a large mirror. Uh, the telescope above my head at the moment, the one in our dome, has a mirror 3.9 meters or about 156 inches in diameter, uh, which used to be among the world's largest. But the world's largest now have mirrors twice that size, around 8 meters in diameter. And we're on the verge of a new generation of what are called ELTs, which stands for Extremely Large Telescopes, with mirrors perhaps 25 meters in diameter. So the bigger the mirror, the more light that comes in that can then be looked at through the magnifying lens. That, that's exactly right, although uh, we gave up using magnifying lenses many, many years ago, and we now use essentially very sophisticated TV cameras to look at what comes down. Uh, we stopped using eyes in the 1880s and replaced it with photographic plates, which themselves have now been replaced. But you're quite right. The bigger the mirror, the more light you can collect, and indeed the more detail you can see in what you're looking at. So uh, size is everything in telescopes. Are there other kinds of telescopes that use something other than the mirror? Well, radio telescopes use dishes, which uh, sort of equate to mirrors. Uh, when you're looking at the very highest energies, like gamma rays and X-rays, and you've got to do that from space, you can't look at these radiations from the uh, surface, that, then they use uh, rather sophisticated what are called grazing incidence mirrors. And the problem, you see, the problem with trying to look at X-rays is that X-rays tend to go through, through most metals and just come out the other side. So you have to be very clever in the way you make the mirror. But still, size is everything, even on those esoteric space-based high-energy telescopes. Well, Dr. Fred Watson, author of Stargazer, The Life and Times of the Telescope, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious from your office in Australia. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, in fact, it's one that's not too... Uh, too far removed from the one we've been talking about, Stargazer. And this is a book which is, in fact, called The Transit of Venus, and that is an event that happens rather rarely uh, in which the planet Venus transits across the face of the sun. And the first one of those that was observed by human eyes was in 1639. And this book, in fact, uh, by Peter Orton, uh, is about the man who worked out that this event was going to take place in 1639 and who uh, actually observed it. And his name was Jeremiah Horrocks. He died, Barry, when he was 22. It's astonishing that he achieved 
a lifetime's experience and expertise in astronomy in a brief span. Uh, in the 1630s, people didn't tend to live very long, and he lived shorter than most, but an extraordinary story, predicting that Venus would transit across the sun and actually observing that for the first time in human history. Dr. Fred Watson, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. It's been a great pleasure, Barry. Thanks very much. Dr. Fred Watson is the author of Stargazer, The Life and Times of the Telescope. The book that he recommends is The Transit of Venus by Peter Auten. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.